is good food? This series will crack open that massive question and put it back together again using anthropology, geography, history, politics, economics and other delicious disciplines. Have your ears caressed and your taste buds tingled for the next 20 minutes. In the studio we have Mukta Das, a PhD researcher in the anthropology of food at SOAS University in London. Mukta's research looks at how South Asians make a home for themselves and their food in Hong Kong, Macau and Guangzhou. With Mukta is Brandy Simpson-Miller, who is a PhD candidate also at SOAS. Her current research focuses on the historical basis for the cultural changes in the Gold Coast in the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly negotiations over food, cooking and ritual. All our presenters in this series will be looking at the question, what is good food? In today's episode, Mukta and Brandy will be thinking through how good food was conceived in the past and how our past and the stories we tell about it affect how we think about good food today. So Brandy, here we are. Mm -hmm. Lovely, sunny September morning. Yes. How are you today? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Um, with you talking about food. So you're a historian, is that right? Is that your PhD subject area? Yes, I am. I'm a historian of the 19th century Gold Coast, now known as as Ghana. Mm. And um, what I hope to do with food history is try to uh, uncover a little bit about the forgotten 19th century in the Gold Coast. Um, A lot of the research just tends to go straight to... um, independence in 1957 uh, with Kwame Nkrumah, the first president, and and thereafter. And um, the 19th century is forgotten, and I hope to use food to get to it. And what about you? Tell us about your discipline. So I'm an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. a food anthropologist, Mm -hmm. which basically means that I explore things through the lens of food, politics, history, all sorts of things. And so my research subject is about South Asian food, chefs, ingredients, as they circulate around South China, specifically Macau, Hong Kong, and Guangzhou. And today I'm really focused in on Macau Mm -hmm. as a really old city um, uh, and has had an influx of Goans and other South Asians for centuries. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that today. And uh, yeah, let's see how we can go ahead and explore things. Well, that's good. So, So with that, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, our first question, which is, well, what is good food is a very large question. And what single facet are we going to talk about today in regards to Macau? I guess for both of us, we're dealing with the past and the mm-hmm. way that histories are made or histories are told and taste um, in, encapsulated in all that, really. So I guess specifically what we're doing today is looking at how the past informs or challenges the way we consider food to be good. So my re- wider research, as I said, I follow South Asian, Indian, Pakistani, Nepali, Bangladeshi ingredients and those that cook this food as they circulate these, this, these three cities. Um, and of course, these cooks are part of a, a history and also a lot of heritage making projects in Macau mm. at the moment. Um, Macau is keen to put their cuisine up 
into the um, list of UNESCO World Heritage, um, Intangible Heritage uh, products um, to celebrate that on the global stage. And so it's looking at this 500-year uh, cuisine and hoping to um, you know, get that recognized globally. And so I'm looking into the taste of Macanese foods and the circulation of spices and other things like that um, into this really important port city um, as it does that now. Okay. Hmm. All right. So um, I'm, I'm just going to continue and ask you another question, if that's okay. Of course. Yeah. Okay. All right. So why is your research important in order for us to understand good food? Well, good food is quite flexible, isn't it? It's a really yeah. slippery, really cunning term. It's, it's used in all sorts of ways. And, and we know that, uh, you know, taste is really subjective. Uh, things that I like, you might not like. I might find this um, croissant too salty. You might think it's perfect. So it's really, really difficult to get down to perceptions of taste and, and use that as an academic starting point. But, you know, if we start to combine that with a sense of history and how people put together histories and make mm. heritage happen, we start to ask really interesting questions about, you know, what does make food tasty? You know, Heston Blumenthal's dinner and other kind of heritage projects that we kind of are familiar with here in the UK, mm. um, where people kind of drill down into old recipes from the 13th century and onwards, you know, what's the work that chefs do in the kitchen to make those foods make sense to us and our palate? In, de in these days. So when you start to think about that, you start to think about all the political stuff, all the kind of um, interesting things that go on. Um, I'm, I'm often thought, I often think about David Sutton's work. Um, he's an anthropologist on food and memory, and he's got a, a he's, he has a fantastic book um, from 2001, a real seminal study on this called The Remem Remembrance of Repasts. I do encourage anybody to, to go ahead and find that and read it. And he talks about society um, over the, you know, last few centuries as um, a society that's moved continents uh, how does this sort of transnationalism affect the way we kind of store our past in our in our recipes in our everyday meals in our special meals and so that's why I think it's really important to understand what we mean by good food especially when we have to take into account every food has a history every food has a biography and I think mm -hmm. if we pay more attention to that we get to we get to taste through and understand what that is like on the palate. Okay, well that brings me to my next question. I was gonna ask you about um, the historical context a little bit of, of Macau, and you, you said it goes back several centuries. What are some of the influences that come through in that taste? What tastes good to, to someone who's Macanese? So that's a really <laughs> big question, as, you're probably, as you probably yeah. know, Brandy. It is, sorry. Um, <laughs> thank you for asking sorry. it. <laughs> um, well, Macau, you know, back in the early 1500s, it was a really sparsely populated outpost, a, a fishing village, perhaps, um, for sort of tanker ethnic minority group. If at all populated, it was popu probably populated by them. Mm. And then we had the um, Portuguese coming along. Um, and uh, I don't want to go into the history of the spice trade, but what you have is a very, very uh, powerful empire built on tr uh, maritime trading, and they make Macau an outpost um, with 
a kind of an agreement with the uh, Chinese, the, the the imperial government of China at the time. And so from about 1557, mm-hmm. um, Macau is technically a Portuguese outpost. And so you have people arriving there, navigators, ships, captains, priests, um, people from other colonies, Angola, Mozambique, um, uh, Goa, um, Malacca, present-day Malaysia. You have all sorts of people circulating in this Portuguese empire who land in Macau Mm -hmm. and they bring with them ideas of good food, of um, ingredients. Um, They bring uh, their cooking skills. They bring their kind of technologies. Mm -hmm. And then they use whatever they can in terms of material, uh, the materials there, uh, uh, different types of fermentation technologies in China, like rice wines and soy mm-hmm. sauces, um, and they use wax. And you know, and there's a real kind of, you know, according to these heritage projects, there's a real melting pot that pretty much transforms life there over the next 500 years and you know is is fundamentally part of a kind of very unique identity in Macau that's according to the official discourse of course it's more complicated than that so I mean talking about these massive colonial (laughs) empires and and you know and and parts of the world opening up um Brandy tell me a little bit more about Ghana in the 19th century Okay, well, the Gold Coast um, was also part of this global trade that you talk about um, from the the very late 15th, early um, 16th century. They have been trading with Europeans gold and ivory and, and um, cloth and all kinds of other things. So, But the, the difference, I think, between Macau and the Gold Coast is that um, Europeans pretty much hugged the coastline. It was impossible for them to get any to get inside because of the disease that was prevalent at the time. So that's not to say that the Gold Coast was not influenced by this global trade. For example, they adopted maize, and that's basically considered a native food, even though it comes from the Americas. But that's one of their staples. Um, they adopted plantain from Asia and bananas and things like that. So, so they're part of the global trade, but not as much influenced by European cooking, per se, um, uh, baking there, as I, th- I think you and I were talking earlier about Macau and how baking is really prevalent, you can't really do that in uh, in the Gold Coast. So that's just one example. But um, some of their, they have lots of microclimates in the Gold Coast. And so that influences, there may be just a handful of staple grains or root roots, but how they are prepared is influenced by the microclimate in which they inhabit. So, right. So if you are in a forested, heavily forested area, again, there's not going to be any baking. You may um, make something into a dumpling and create it into a thick super stew. And that that's actually pretty much the format um, for most of the area. But whether or not you use yam or maize or millet or a plantain or a combination thereof depends on where you live. So it's a very localized food. So when we think about circulation of ideas of good food, Mm. how's your research then looking into that? Um, It must be very difficult, right? Quite challenging then. It is, it is. Um, But but that's, I enjoy that challenge. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, 
Um, it's it's kind of like I'm, I think I'm going to steal a term that you used. What was it? Forensic? No, it was culinary forensics. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about earlier. Um, just trying to uncover the uh, 19th century. But but in my research, I um, went to the archives, and in the late 19th century, the British government began a project whereby they started recording oral histories because they were assuming that once. Uh, the Gold Coast turned in, you know, to a colony, that it would begin to lose its uh, culture. And that it really hasn't happened. But in any case, there's lots of oral histories that come out of that. And I discovered that eating good food doesn't really have so much to do with taste. I mean, it does. Food is very tasty. But it's more about ensuring that you're following the prescribed rules for how to behave, how to eat in such a way that you're, um, you're, uh, propagating good relations with deities or with ancestors. And you do this by showing gratitude. And the way in which you show gratitude in the Gold Coast in the 19th century is by either abstaining from certain foods on certain days of the week in honor of your ancestor or whichever deity, or um, by um, sacrificing a bit of the food. So it's more about, uh, about when and how to eat more than what tastes good. That good food helps protect the community. Good food helps create the community identity and good food helps to ensure that next year's harvest or next season's harvest will continue to um, to come. So then can I ask you, Brandy, mm. what does it mean to eat bad food then okay. in your research? Right. So bad food means that you are acting in disregard for your community. You don't comply uh, your lack of gratitude by um, eating certain things or not eating certain things is putting your community at risk. And uh, so it has really very little to do, I mean, with taste um, and more to do with morals and values and um, protecting your community. But what about in Macau now? What have you found is good food. What does that mean there? Is it is it moral and spiritual or is it something else entirely? There's definitely everything and everything, as we've talked about before, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of the moral um, behaviors and policing of what it means to be Macanese, especially in this current context. So history is kind of used as a way to politicize a kind of um, a Macanese identity to make it, uh, you know, unique in the kind of southern Chinese hemisphere to make it unique in the Portuguese lusophonic post-colonial world. It does a lot of work, um, history, and taste is a fundamental part of that. And I, I guess I want to reclaim taste from the morals, really. I want to look at taste in terms of how chefs make these historical food taste good, even in the, you know, in the current day. And so um, my research sort of takes me into kitchens and uh, to see how current day chefs, TV chefs, uh, chefs involved in these heritage projects, um, uh, the executive chef at the, um, the Institute for Tourism Studies in Macau, which is a sort of a premier institute to kind of safeguard Macanese food for later generations. Wow. They have a culinary, uh, they have uh, programs that teach Macanese food. They have competitions uh, to judge the best young chef in Macanese foods and stuff like this. So they do a lot of work here. Mm. So when I think about good food and what that means in this context, I'm often thinking about this executive chef. And he's brilliant. 
he heads up this kitchen. Um, I've I've observed him and how he manages this space. I went there once. Um, every Friday they have a Macanese buffet. It's quite celebrated in Macau. And so I was there to watch the chefs prepare this food. And so he's he's half Macanese and, and half Danish. Um, and uh, the Danish side of him, um, he comes from a sort of Scandinavian culinary school, which is all about, OK, well, let's take these ingredients back, these otherwise processed industrial ingredients. Let's take them back to the, the kernels, uh, uh, the ingredients. Let, let's, let's make this from scratch kind of mentality. Mm, so mm-hmm. he has all sorts of stores and warehouses for doing this to meat and doing that to beans and all this kind of thing and then when the macanese buffet gets served you know these this is uh, macanese food in all honesty as it is you know it uses industrial catering spices it uses industrially produced soy sauces this is a cuisine that has survived all sorts of things for 500 years and it's embraced mm-hmm. industrial production it has to so he looks over and he sees these chefs and he's you know, he's like, oh, how can this be good, tasty food? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it is. When we sit down and eat later, it is fa- tasty. But right. it's all about the labour of the chef sometimes in these mm-hmm. in these situations, in these possibly more elite situations, you know, where these old Macanese chefs are kind of forced into these, well, not forced, but, you know, encouraged to kind of think beyond the realms of what they're used to. Mm. Um, and, you know, other t- I've, I've worked with other chefs and observed them. And, you know, it's all about you know, a lot of the chefs that are now making a name for themselves in this in this Macanese world are people that use small batch artisanally made uh, products, uh, things that they find in uh, in street corners. People, Mm -hmm. old ladies are still making certain types of shrimp paste. And so they take that home, add brandy, do what they do um, and turn this into something else. So they're seeking out labor rather than the product itself. It's almost like the labor is what makes this food taste good. The more that you can use that labor to, to involve yourself in the process of cooking, uh, the better it tastes. Wow. Um, I just wanted to talk about um, the Gold Coast or Ghana after it was independent. That is not something that happened in Ghana after independence. They didn't make the food do the work. Um, Kwame Nkrumah used cloth. For example, you might have heard of kente cloth. That became a national fabric. He used um, uh, postage stamps, uh, currency. All those things were made to do the work of you know the national project. The food took a back seat, interestingly, mm-hmm. in that time. Um, when you would go to steak banquets, they're serving what they call continental cuisine, which is mostly European. Local food is relegated to parts of five-star hotels that are more casual dining spaces like the deli or um, over by the beachfront. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the front and center would be, and even now Chinese, Chinese mm-hmm. and European cuisine <laughs> is what is, is exalted. And um, I had opportunity to speak to um, the chef at the Labadi Beach, uh, the Golden Tulip, the, the food government research group. And right, the food does not do the work of branding the nation in Ghana as it does in Macau. And I think we talked about that a little bit um, and about how in Ghana the food is very local. Again, upwards of 70% of the people there are still farming their own food, whether or not they're involved in some other industry. They're growing their own food. And I think you told me that in Macau that's not really... Single digits, I think, at most. Are people involved in agriculture or food processing locally, I would say. Yeah, Yeah, factories that are producing... I mean, you know, they're largely they've been moved into mainland China, which is just literally across the border, you know, like a, a walk. You can walk across the border and, and buy products. So a lot of people do. Wow. Um, Chinese 
um, yeah, grown things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting what you say about uh, that European food being a category because it was so in Macau, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about a very uh, recent thing to think about Macanese food as Macanese uh, and not Portuguese. Um, so these kind of heritage projects kind of reaffirm nationhood, um, but it's not, be, it's not been a static idea of nationhood. It's been very, very different um, up until the 70s. I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that Macanese food sort of swam into view from the 70s onwards with lots of um, you know with talk of a Portuguese handover back to China so yeah Mm. very complicated okay well um, in light of this I guess I just wanted to ask you how can you how can we use this new perspective on Macanese food on good food what they consider good food in our daily lives So I think I may have said this at the beginning. I think every food has a kind of biography. And I think we need to pay attention to that biography. Mm -hmm. Um, Even lab-grown meat is trying to make us taste real meat from our past. You know, there's a a disconnect there. There's no uninterrupted uh, history of food. There's all sorts of different stories happening Mm -hmm. all at once. Uh, And we need to pay attention as we chew and taste and eat to kind of understand that multivariate, you know, that kind of diversity of stories in our food. That's what I think when I when I think about what to take away from this. Mm-hmm. I think about that. How about you, Brandy? What yeah. do you think we could take away from this discussion of good food? I, I would have to agree with you. I, I think that the work that I'm doing uh, could help promote an awareness of the sources of the food, who's doing the processing, who's doing the growing, who's doing the packaging and the delivery. A lot of times in the West, and I'm from the United States, there's a there's a real disconnect also with the meaning of food. I think one uh, U.S. holiday would be Thanksgiving. That's about the only time when we actually think about the meaning of what it is that we're eating, the symbolic meaning. Um, another way that our work could impact uh, people's daily lives would be to gr- get a gain a greater understanding of ourselves, like I just said, our own constructions of identity. Um, and also, I think that it's important to learn and practice gratitude mm. for the abundance and the variety of food that we have access to so very easily. And studying Gold Coast culture enables me to get in touch with that. Well, we've been talking a lot about... Um your your research and I know you shared a fascinating story with me about a kind of a moral a parable a parable uh, right um when I was doing my archival research as I as I was saying there is um, a lot of oral histories recorded and surprisingly just about every one had to do with food it was amazing in any case food you know and its ability ability your ability to to cook it to transform it was really powerful um and um and it decided claims about the division of resources. Sometimes it determined relations among people. The one story I'm going to tell you about is about the hen um, and the woman who was an ancestress of the Talensi people of the north of the Gold Coast, Ghana. Um, once upon a time, there was a woman uh, in Talensi, and she kept hearing these, these rumors about her husband. People kept coming to her and telling her that he was unfaithful, that he was a poor character. And so she's sitting outside her kitchen, her outdoor kitchen, and she was, she was weeping. And a hen comes up to her and says, you, 
you know, why are you weeping? And, and she tells her the story about how these people are slandering her husband and she's not sure if she should stay with him and, and, and make a family or should she just leave? So they hence and her, they hatched a plan. Uh, the plan was that uh, the wife would, would prepare a beverage for her husband. It's made out of maize and water and put it in the calabash and give it to him. And the hen would fly up and dash it out of his hand. And just to see, to gauge his reaction, if he was an evil man, he would kill the hen. If he was a good man, then he would spare the hen. So, so they proceeded. She prepared the beverage. Her husband comes in. Um, she gives him the calabash. He prepares to drink it. The hen flies up and dashes the calabash from his hand. And the man says, oh, that hen must have been thirsty. That's a thirsty hen. <laughs> so uh, thus proving that he was of good character. The woman stayed with her husband. Um, she, they, they made a family and now she is an ancestress of this lineage. And she resolved when her first child was born, she resolved this child is not ever going to eat chicken. And that's in deference and in thanks to that hen who allowed her to propagate this, this lineage. And so even today, uh, in, in Talensi, the firstborn child, uh, this this lineage just abstains from chicken, does not eat chicken, and that's just an example of of good food. That's how you that's how you do good food. Food you either eat it in gratitude or you abstain in gratitude from it. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you very much to Brandy and Mukta for a fascinating discussion there. I hope you'll tune in again next time for uh, our next podcast in the series, What is Good Food?